The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. After the news, I interviewed the Republic of Armenia's High Commissioner of Diaspora Affairs, Zara Sinanyan. Also, I have a, a very special guest today, uh, Alexander Lapshin. Now, let me tell you that I was just in Armenia for two weeks, uh, finishing the principal photography for my documentary feature film called Motherland, uh, about last year's attack on the Armenians of Artsakh by Azerbaijan and Turkey. And so I learned that uh, my today's guest, Alexander Lapshin, was in Armenia. So stay tuned. Here are a few deadlines from over the weekend and this morning. Two lawyers who went to court to claim voter fraud after the 2020 election must pay nearly 180000 to the defendants they sued a federal magistrate judge ordered Monday saying their lawsuit aimed to manipulate gullible members of the public and ferment public unrest. The order from the judge of the U.S. District Court in Colorado adds to the federal judiciary's condemnations of attempts by attorneys supporting then-Donald Trump to use the courts to vet right-wing conspiracies in the days after the presidential election. The Biden administration is weighing sending military advisors and new equipment, including weaponry, to Ukraine as Russia builds up forces near the border and U.S. officials prepare allies for the possibility of another Russian invasion. Meanwhile, U.S. officials have been holding discussions with European allies about putting together a new sanctions package that would go into effect if Russia invaded Ukraine. And lawmakers are also jockeying over new sanctions language to include in the National Defense Authorization Act. Inflation has taken its toll on much of the world recently, but the United States has stood out as one of the most affected in the last few months. With a 6.2% annual inflation rate in October, the U.S. is now seeing prices increase at the highest rate in more than 30 years. As prices continue to rise, inflation has become a political problem for President Biden. According to the polling company Gallup, 26% of Americans say an economic concern such as unemployment, inflation, or the economy in general is the country's top problem. 7% specifically pointed to inflation as the nation's most pressing issue. As they do, I want to take a moment to talk about the economy both the progress we made and the challenges we remain that we have to face. We made historic progress over the last 10 months. Unemployment is down to 4.6%. Two years faster than everyone expected when we started this job was over 14%. Wages are rising. Disposable income is up. More people are starting small businesses than ever before. And our economy has created a record 5.6 million jobs since I became president on January 20th. There's a lot we can be proud of and a lot we can build on for the future. 
But we still face challenges in our economy. Disruptions related to the pandemic have caused challenges in our supply chain, which have sparked concern about shortages and contributed to higher prices. Moms and dads are worried, asking, will there be enough food we can afford to buy for the holidays? Will we be able to get Christmas presents to the kids on time? And if so, will they cost me an arm and a leg? I told you before that we're going to take action on these problems. That's exactly what we're doing. It starts with my port action plan, a proactive three-month effort to invest in our ports and relieve bottlenecks. Forty percent of the goods, for example, that come into this country on the West Coast come through two ports, Los Angeles and Long Beach. To help ease the congestion at these ports, I brought together labor and management and asked them to step up and cooperate. To move from operating the ports at 40 hours a week at those ports to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I provided the resources to other key ports, including Savannah, Georgia, and on the East Coast, on the East Coast, and to help reduce congestion and undo damage caused by COVID. We also met with the CEOs of Walmart, Target, Home Depot, TJ Maxx, and others. Those retailers, large retailers, and others agreed to move products more quickly stock the shelves more quickly. And by the way, you may have heard the CEO of Walmart yesterday on the steps we've taken. He said, and I quote, the combination of private enterprise and government working together has been really successful. He went on to say, all the way through the supply chain, there's a lot of innovation. Because of the actions we've taken, things have begun to change. End of quote. In the past three weeks, the number of containers sitting on docks blocking movement are down by 33%. Shipping prices are down 25%. More goods are moving more quickly and more cheaply out of our ports, onto your doorsteps and onto store shelves. And so all these concerns a few weeks ago, there would be, uh, there'd not be ample food available for Thanksgiving. So many people talked about that, understandably. But families can rest easy. Grocery stores are well stocked with turkey and everything else you need for Thanksgiving. And the major retailers I mentioned are con have confirmed that their shelves will be well stocked in stores this holiday season. And that's good news for those moms and dads who are worried about whether the Christmas gifts will be available. It goes for everything from bicycles to ice skates. You know, today, though, I, I want to address another challenge that families are facing and the one I think they're most focused on right now, high gas prices. This is a problem, not just here in the United States, but around the world. The price of gasoline has reached record levels recently in Europe and in Asia. In France, at the end of the last month, it reached about $7 per gallon. In Japan, it's about $5.50 per gallon, the highest it's been in years. Of course, it's always painful when gas prices, gas prices spike. Today, the price of gas in America, on average, is $3.40 a gallon. In California, it's much higher. The impact is real. But the fact is, we faced even worse spikes before. Just in the last decade, we saw it in 2012 when the price of gasoline hit $3.90. We saw it in 2014 when it hit $3.69. And re as recently as 2019, we saw it surpass $3 in many places. The fact is, we always get through those spikes, but we're going to get through this one as well and hopefully faster. 
But it doesn't mean we should just stand by idly and wait for prices to drop on their own. Instead, we're taking action. The big part of the, of the reason Americans are facing high gas prices is because oil-producing countries and large companies have not ramped up the supply of oil quickly enough to meet the demand. And the smaller supply means higher prices globally, globally, for oil. To address these issues, I got on the phone with leaders from other countries grappling with this challenge to try to find ways to lower oil prices and ultimately to, to the, the price you pay at the pump. So today, I'm announcing that the largest ever release from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help provide the supply we need as we recover from this pandemic. In addition, I brought together other nations to contribute to the solution. India, Japan, the Republic of Korea, and the United Kingdom have agreed to release additional oil from their reserves. And China may do more as well. This coordinated action will help us deal with a lack of supply, which in turn helps ease prices. The bottom line, today we're launching a major effort to moderate the price of oil, an effort that will span the globe in its reach and ultimately reach your, cor your corner gas station, God willing. I've worked hard these past few weeks in calls and meetings with foreign leaders, policymakers, to put together the building blocks for today's global announcement. And while our, our combined actions will not solve the problem of high gas prices overnight, it will make a difference. It will take time, but before long, you should see the price of gas drop where you fill up your tank. And in the longer term, we will reduce our reliance on oil as we shift to clean energy. But right now, I will do what needs to be done to reduce the price you pay at the pump from the middle class and working families that are spending much too much, and it's a strain. And you're the reason I was sent here to look out for you. There's another issue that uh, we'll be addressing as well, because the fact is the price of oil was already dropping prior to this announcement, and many suggest in anticipation of the announcement. The price of gasoline in the wholesale market has fallen by about 10 percent over the last few weeks. But the price of the pump hasn't budged a penny. In other words, gas supply companies are paying less and making a lot more. And they do not seem to be passing that on to the consumers at the pump. In fact, if the gap between wholesale and retail gas prices was in line with past averages, Americans would be paying at least 25 cents less per gallon right now, as I speak. Instead, companies are pocketing the difference as profit. That's unacceptable. And that's why I've asked the Federal Trade Commission to consider whether potentially illegal and anti-competitive behavior in the oil and gas industry is causing higher prices for consumers. So we can assure the American people are paying a fair price for the gasoline. I also want to briefly address one myth about inflated gas prices. They're not due to environmental measures. My effort to combat climate change is not raising the price of gas or increasing its availability. It, what it is doing, it's increasing the availability of jobs. Jobs building electric cars like the one I drove at the GM Detroit, the GM factory in Detroit last week. For the hundreds of thousands of folks who brought one of those electric cars, they're going to save $800 to $1,000 in fuel costs this year. And we're going to put those savings within reach of more Americans and create jobs installing solar panels, batteries, electric heat pumps, jobs making those clean power-generating devices. 
And by the way, deploying these technologies for each home where they're installed is going to save folks an additional hundreds of dollars in energy costs every year. Let's do that. Let's beat climate change with more extensive innovation and opportunities. We can make our economy and consumers less vulnerable to these sorts of price spikes when we do that. And finally, even as we meet, even as we meet to work uh, out this challenge, it's important to maintain perspective about where our economy stands today. The fact is, America has a lot to be proud of. We're experiencing the strongest economic recovery in the world. Uh, even after accounting for inflation, our economy is bigger and our families have more money in their pockets than they did before the pandemic. And America is the only major economy in the world that can say that. It's testament to the grit and determination of the American people, as well as our unique approach to this recovery and our focus on rebuilding our economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not the top down. Because of that approach, we're the only leading economy in the world where household income and the economy as a whole are stronger than they were before the pandemic hit. Let me close with this. This Thanksgiving, we have so much to be grateful for. Vaccines that are effective, safe, and free. Promising new treatments, providing for hope that we can bring an end to the worst tragedies of this crisis. Record job growth, the strongest recovery in the world, and most of all, the chance to be together again with the people we love on Thanksgiving. As you gather together with your family this Thanksgiving, I want you to know how grateful I am to serve as your president. And I promised you that I'll never stop working to address your family's needs. And together, we're going to confront challenges that we face them, are going to face them honestly. And that we'll keep building this economy around hardworking folks who built this country. Traffic at retail stores on Black Friday dropped 28.3% compared with 2019 levels as Americans shifted more of their spending online and kicked off their shopping earlier in the year, according to preliminary data from Sensormatic Solutions. Traffic was up 47.5% compared with a year ago levels, uh, Sensormatic said. This time in 2020, Many shoppers stayed at home due to the fears around the coronavirus pandemic and as retailers operated on somewhat reduced hours. Online, retailers rang up 8.9 billion in sales on Black Friday, down from the record of about 9 billion spent on Friday after Thanksgiving a year earlier, according to data from Adobe Analytics. It marked the first time ever that growth reversed from the prior year, Adobe said. Thanksgiving Day, consumers spent $5.1 billion on the internet, flat from year-ago levels, Adobe said. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Today's Let's Get Blunt is about a couple of topics, but they are related. The first one is about the fact that a lot of retailers, mostly corporations, are complaining that there aren't uh, enough people who want to work. They can't hire enough people. Of course, some of this is due to um, COVID-19, the fact that there are people who are still in fear, and there are people who, uh, for whatever reason, uh, it's not a judgment, just a statement, don't want to get vaccinated. And so that's definitely a factor. But I think the other 
a factor is that perhaps after decades of the middle class and the working class and the working poor's income staying relatively stagnant, people are tired of it. People are tired of working for $13, $14, $15 an hour. Uh, Let's just talk about Southern California and in, in, in a region of the country where a one-bedroom apartment starts at around two grand or 2100 and yet uh, we're expected to, to see someone who's making you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 dollars an hour uh, be able to live a modest life, you know, paying uh, rent, insurance, car, uh, and all the other expenses that, uh, you know, we all have. So maybe that's also another part of it. Maybe the tens of thousands of people who are driving around Amazon trucks delivering goods to us, uh, and I'm grateful for mine, uh, but, you know, I'm still going to be blunt about it, that, you know, they're seeing that they're barely making their ends meet with what they're doing. And, their CEO uh, is making billions and has uh, his wealth has gone up billions in just the last year. So perhaps instead of sort of saying, you know, nobody wants to work and complaining about that, maybe corporations need to look at themselves and what they're paying and make it more attractive for people to work for them. I forget who it is, but there's a CEO who made the headlines because he made $70,000, the minimum anyone can make in his company, and his company is flourishing. So perhaps that's a great model to follow uh, instead of just sort of blaming it on um, the workforce. And it's interesting because we hear whenever that kind of a conversation comes up uh, about minimum wage uh, increasing to at least 15 an hour nationwide and more in cities like New York, San Francisco, LA, these executives come out and say, but we, we're not going to make it. Our, you know, our company is going to, uh, uh, you know, see a lot of, um, adverse effects, etc. You know what, <laughs> what they're actually saying is that they're not going to take home two, three, four million dollars a year. Perhaps they'll make, take home maybe two million a year. So their bonuses may be reduced and, so they won't get to sort of have that extra extra second or third vacation home uh, if they paid their employees a living wage. And the other thing is, I was talking to someone who works for an elected official in, uh, in Los Angeles, not the mayor, and we were talking about uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti. And she just turned to me and said, you know, he's checked out. He's just done. He's not doing anything, you know, just just basically very ceremonial and surface stuff. But for all intensive purposes, uh, he just he's just checked out, which has been obvious for a while. And, you know, initially I was very excited about Mary Garcetti. But where is L.A. after years of Eric Garcetti? Where are all the you know what happened to all the problems he was going to solve? And let's just look at just homelessness, you know, or I should say people who are unhoused. What has happened? Of course, if you ask him, he'll point out to a 
a tiny home community he sort of um, championed to be built somewhere in the valley for like 157 families or whatever that number was. But that's a drop in a bucket. Like, where are all these promises that he made when he was uh, running for re-election in terms of the economy, the the L.A. economy, and helping the unhoused uh, people with mental illness and drug problems? What happened to all of that? Are we in a better place? And look, I'm a Democrat, but it's not going to stop me from calling out, you know, another Democrat who was in office. I, I just don't think that he was a great mayor. And now, of course, he goes on to bigger and better things because that's what happens in politics. Uh, you know, you get rewarded for, you know, not doing an excellent job. He gets to be the U.S. ambassador for India. And, and that's that. And we're sort of going to circulate with the same issues and same uh, problems as we've had between uh, traffic and uh, unemployment and unhoused uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, where are we with uh, public transportation? Are we getting any close? And the Olympics coming to the U.S., it's, it's coming in a few years. So we've got to get um, harder on our elected officials regarding, uh, regardless of our uh, party affiliation, I've always said, and I will continue to say, that my credibility comes from being able to uh, call out just anyone, and including those that are closest to me, whether it be Democrats, um, liberals, progressives, um, LGBTQ community, the Armenian-American community, and whatnot. And I will call anyone out, uh, regardless, if, um, if they just made empty promises and nothing came of it. And uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, Mayor Garcetti has not performed to the level that he said he would and that we expected. So there you have it. Let's get blunt and keep the conversation going. Let's get blunt. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego County, and globally at kpfk.org. Donating your car or boat is an excellent way to help KPFK stay alive and on air. All you have to do is call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO, and we'll take care of everything. The Blunt Post with Vic. Zara Sinanyan earned his bachelor's degree from UCLA and his law degree from USC. After working for the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, he worked for several law firms in Southern California. In 2013, Sinanyan was elected to the Glendale City Council and served as mayor of Glendale from April 2014 through April 2015, and then again from April 2018 through June 2019. In 2019, Sinanyan was appointed to serve as the High Commissioner for Diaspora Affairs at the office of the Prime Minister of Republic of Armenia, Nicole Pashinyan. He lives in Armenia with his wife and four children. Thank you for uh, speaking with me about uh, the state of Armenia and Artsakh as is and moving forward 
and as it was. So I'm going to come right out and say, and just ask you, what was going through your mind and what did it look like for you on September 27th of 2020, when you found out, when you first heard that there was an attack? Well, the war started early in the morning on the 27th, which was a Sunday. And um, either just had just woken up or was in the process of waking up because it's a it is a Sunday, and it was seven fifteen a.m. I think, and I actually found out from my sister, um, or uh, either yeah, I believe my sister called me and, and said that uh, there's war, and of course I jumped up with the intention of going to the office and. By then, I already received the official call from the government to report to work, and I was already on the way. Did you, at the time, think that it was going to be what it ended up being, uh, 44 days of this assault, this ongoing? I did not, uh, honestly. I didn't. I thought that um, it would be a much longer war, uh, more like the 91-94 war. I also realized that we were probably um, not going to fare well during that war because I've known for years that while Azerbaijan is preparing and has been preparing for decades on, on every level, uh, on every level, uh, industrial, military, technological, financial, economic, um, know-how, training of soldiers, the quality of officer corps, uh, diplomatic level, uh, Armenia had not. Armenia had wasted the 26 or so years of its victory over Azerbaijan, and um, the new government had done much to try to catch up mm -hmm. and make up for that lost time, but it wasn't uh, enough time. and. Again, in, in two years, you can't change a mindset. You can't change um, all the cadres. You know, the human resources are are going to be a problem sure. for a long time. And uh, but I thought, you know, this is take a long time. It'll take huge sacrifice from our nation. Um, we have to minimize the damage. That was my thought. I actually pre I predicted the war in in pretty certain terms. Uh, in May of that year, I knew the war, war, war was coming. It's inevitable. It's going to happen soon. Because I saw what was happening in Libya and what Turkey was doing with uh, the Syrian mercenaries and its effectiveness in taking out Russian air defenses against uh, General Haftar and his forces. And, I, and I, I had kind of this aha moment. I realized that they're going to replicate this against us. The moment they realize they can take out our air defenses is the moment when they can assault us. Because I knew that uh, on every other level they surpass, surpassed us. You've been a diplomat, an American diplomat for years. You're well, elected official, I'd like to. Well, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. and that too. And uh, you, you're familiar with international affairs, obviously. Were you surprised at the relative silence of the international community? Uh, no. I was not surprised. I, I understand the cynicism of foreign politics and diplomacy. I also believe Armenia should take, should take the blame for some of it. Uh, again, 
you in order for the for the international community to respond a certain way to this you have to work towards it mm -hmm. we had again 26 years in which we should have conducted effective diplomacy um, again diplomacy is uh, one of the key uh, aspects of national security and you have to exercise that part of it as you would exercise the military part of it you know you have to gear up for war you have to constantly gear up for war and and use diplomacy as another tool in your tool shed and again that wasn't done and we saw the results the results were uh, not on unforeseeable and they were directly related to Armenia's very weak diplomatic efforts in uh, 20, 26, 30 years preceding the, the Second War. Point taken, but how about OSCE? They were pretty involved. There are many organizations, OSCE, UN, uh, Minsk Group, uh, you, you know, national, uh, the Security Council, United Nations Security Council. At the end of the day, they're composed of countries, uh, all of whom are motivated by self-interest. You have to base everything you do on the acceptance of the fact that countries act out of self-interest question there is what do you represent for those countries? What interest do you represent for them? Uh, what is it that is going to motivate them to act in your uh, defense or uh, in your favor? And once you can answer that question, mm -hmm. you can realistically expect support from one country or another. But unless you've answered that question, unless you've created a value in yourself for those countries, they're not going to to act uh, on your behalf or in, in your favor. You know, there's a saying in Armenian: uh, they're not going to act for your beautiful eyes. They're not going to. They're not going to do anything because that's not sufficient. There has to be national interest involved. Countries with uh, large natural resources uh, have that. That in of itself represents a value, and other countries, because of their self-interest, will act upon it. Sure. Armenia doesn't have those natural resources. Armenia has other things which it could have utilized, which it could have used as, as, a, as a means of becoming valuable for other countries, but that wasn't done. That was a process that couldn't have been done in two, two and a half years. Of course it couldn't have. We're talking yeah. about, again, remember, Azerbaijan geared up for this war for 26 years, and there's a reason for it, because they... They covered every aspect of what would be required in order for them to prevail. Right. And they had some help from uh, Mother Nature too, you know. Uh, COVID was a yeah. perfect opportunity when countries were more dissociated and more distant and more isolated from one another due to the illness. So. Yeah. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Zare Sinanyan, High Commissioner of Diaspora Affairs for the Republic of Armenia. Let's, um, let's talk about Artsakh. So about 80 to 90% of what was Artsakh or Nagarno-Karabakh to most non-Armenians uh, is basically now occupied by Azerbaijan and its 150,000 population is down to who knows, maybe 90,000 90, to 100,000 and that's a lot of them going back to live there in the last few months. What is 
What is the status from your perspective of Artsakh right now? Not, you know, I'm not sure about the percentages. It may be a little this way, that way. Sure. Uh, I, and I don't think that matters as far as your question is concerned. But Artsakh is clearly um, a territory that's not under Azeri control, that part of Artsakh which isn't under their occupation. Um, but its security is reliant upon a third country. I mean, Russia's military presence is the thing now that is ensuring the safety of the Armenian people uh, in that territory. The status of Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Artsakh, uh, is, continues to, to be uh, debatable and it's in jeopardy. And uh, our efforts, along with the main effort of increasing our capability, national security capabilities, should be to um, determine the final status of Artsakh as either an independent state or a part of Republic of Armenia. So that's a non-negotiable. Is it safe to assume? There is no territory outside of the Republic of Armenia that's either under control of Turkey or Azerbaijan. Indigenous ter territories where indigenous Armenians have resided for thousands of years that today have an Armenian population. The fact is, anything that goes under their control, the indigenous people, who are the Armenians, are either killed or expelled. Uh, this has been a continuous process since the Seljuk invasion of Armenia proper, right. then under the Ottoman Empire, culminating in the massacres of the 1890s, and then the Armenian Genocide, massacres in Artsakh, in Shushi, in Baku, in Nakhchevan in the 1905-1907 period, 1920 period, and since 1988. So that's a fact. Uh, there is no, no one, no, no one is under any illusion that uh, Armenian people can live and maintain their uh, cultural heritage on their own land as long as that land is under Azeri control. It's yeah. a fact. You can't coexist with people who don't want you to exist. Right. You can't, uh, you, you can't, right. I mean, they have proven uh, through their actions that they don't want Armenian people to exist. And that's a fact. As well. And it seems like now they are, this aggression doesn't end. It's like the bully that keeps bullying. Right. And now we're sort of facing this issue in the Sunnic region. Mm -hmm. You know, we know what their motivations are politically to have a corridor and to isolate Armenia even more so. What's the, what do we not know about that? Do, what do we not know about that? Beyond the obvious. Beyond the fact, I think that things are obvious. Things are obvious. They, it, it, uh, Turkey has a goal of creating a land connection to Azerbaijan, and that's what this is about. But we knew that this is what it was going to be about. When there's a reason that during the first Artsakh war, we liberated uh, territories beyond the administrative borders of the former Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous uh, Region. The, some of those territories were a very uh, essential uh, life-saving buffer zones right. because we know that their ambitions go way beyond uh, the liberated territories, the ones that we liberated in 91-94 period, beyond Artsakh proper, and now we're seeing it in action. Of course, that's a much harder bone for them to, to chew upon 
because it is part of Armenia's uh, recognized uh, territory. But as experience has shown, again, the international community today is in such disarray and uh, there's such a disengagement by um, some of the major players, uh, for example, the United States or the European Union, where aggressive states uh, can act uh, at will and get away with it. We also have to remember that Turkey is the one country mm -hmm. that since the 1970s has been occupying a good chunk of Cyprus mm -hmm. and no one has lifted a finger to punish them for it. Turkey yeah. continues to occupy northern Cyprus and they've gotten away with it. So the, the moral of the story is they can do it and get away with it again. And this is what's sad. So what's next? What are Well, again, we have to increase our national security capabilities. And that means many things, not only strengthen and modernize, completely overhaul our military, completely overhaul the military, strengthen the economy, strengthen our diplomatic efforts, um, and create a, an entire system uh, of various layers of, of defense that will uh, make it too costly for anyone to attack Armenia, attack the Armenian people where they reside in their ancestral homeland. What would you want people watching, non-Armenians, who may not even know where Artsakh is, who, what, would you, what would you want them to know? Um, or maybe even just correct some sort of a misconception or some propaganda from Azerbaijan that's sort of out there. Turkey and Azerbaijan has, have used uh, several decades and billions of dollars uh, that they have to build uh, a legend around themselves uh, and specifically as it comes to Artsakh. And it is a legend based on lies. The, the, the simple truth is that the Armenian people that have lived in these lands since time immemorial, I mean, since written history has come into existence. Our people want to, you know, have the opportunity to live on our ancestral homelands that have constantly been encroached upon by the Turks, whether they're called Azeri Turks, Ottoman Turks, today's Turks, um, and they just want to exterminate what remains of the Armenian nation, which they weren't able to exterminate in 1915. That's all. It's that simple. For us, this is existence. It's, it's all about um, being able to live and retain our cultural heritage on our homeland. For them, it's just continuation of what they've done for the last thousand years, which is expand on territories that they're guests on. Yeah, the pan-Turkic ambition. Sorry, I'm going to ask you one more question, so then um, don't want to take too much of your time. What questions should I have asked that I haven't, or anything you'd want to add? If to the extent that uh, you, you, the purpose of this film is to to air sort of the realities on the ground in Armenia as, as, as it relates to Artsakh, I think it's important for our, our compatriots in the diaspora, especially in the United States, to ask what tangible results, tangible results, they are getting from their efforts uh, or, or the efforts of their elected officials. I mean, a lot of elected officials over the last decades have, you know, used a lot of nice words and promised things and the word genocide is used a lot 
genocide recognition has been used a lot. A lot of effort has been spent in that direction. And the question needs to be asked is, what tangible results have the Armenians uh, throughout the world, specifically Armenian community in the United States, gotten? And the Armenian people uh, that live in Armenia, of course, that means Artsakh as well, what we have gotten from those efforts. I think that's a key. I think everyone needs to stop, sort of take a deep breath, ask that question, and then be very honest with the answer, and then move on from that point on right. based on what that, the answer to that question is. Yeah. And I'm, again, I'm talking about tangible results, yeah. not moral victories, not feel-good moments, right. but something that has increased uh, our survivability in this world. Right. Oh, that's a really good point. Thank you for uh, speaking with me. That was my interview with High Commissioner Zara Sinanyan from the Republic of Armenia. Thank you, High Commissioner, for your time and for being on the show. And uh, I hope to chat with you again soon. Hi, this is Leela Downs. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, globally on kpfk.org. En una noche de luna, Naila lloraba ante mí. The Blunt Post with Vic. My special guest today is uh, Alexander Lapshin. I'm very excited to have this uh, interview with Alexander, who I met in Armenia just uh, about over a week ago. I was there, uh, I've said this before, I was there filming for my documentary feature film, Motherland, and uh, I had the opportunity to meet with him and interview him for the film. Uh, but this is a new interview uh, that I'm doing just for the show. And... Um, Introduction to him is a, is a little sort of lengthy because, you know, Alexander is a journalist and a travel writer. He's a, he's a Russian Israeli who has traveled throughout the world and happened to have gone to uh, Artsakh, also known as Nagorno Karabakh, in 2011 uh, to sort of write and blog about his travels and food and places to see and such. Uh, sort of not knowing what he's walking into. And later he did the same thing going to Azerbaijan, also unsuspected, sort of just doing his thing. And uh, in 2017, while on vacation in Belarus with his family, he was arrested by the officials there under the order of the Azerbaijani government. And he was extradited to Azerbaijan. Um, not allowed to sort of talk to anyone, his attorney, diplomats, family, etc. And uh, he had, uh, you know, months of being in the prison, um, sort of a brutal prison. He was abused and he was assaulted and uh, they attempted to kill him. In fact, they have attempted to kill him twice after that while he is uh, free. Um, finally, the Israeli government and the Russian government and the European Union uh, got involved and he was freed. Um, but of course, with a, quite a lot of damage to him, obviously, and his family and such. And so it, this is a remarkable story and uh, one that it, it just sort of spans politics, geopolitics, power, dictatorship of Azerbaijan, human rights, and such. So I hope you enjoy my uh, interview with, uh, with uh, Alexander Lapshin. I think there's a lot that you will um, hear 
that there's no way for me to cover during the introduction. So enjoy. Hello, Alex. Uh, welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you today? I know it's, uh, even though it's morning here, uh, you are in Yerevan, Armenia, which is 11 hours ahead. So it's evening there. So good evening. Uh, yeah, good evening, good morning, California. I'm here in Yerevan. I'm drinking my Armenian tea called uh, Urts in Armenian language. Uh, so and I'm happy to discuss with you. Uh, so good morning, America. Well, good morning uh, back to you. Um, as you know, I was just in Armenia uh, finishing my documentary feature film, Motherland. Um, I was there for the second time. And I had the privilege to meet you, which was a, a special treat. And uh, of course, you have a, such an incredible story that uh, so many people already know about it. But I wanted to talk about it. And even though your case uh, has been an international story for several years and you recently had a victory, um, I think there are people who might still not be familiar with it. So... <laughs> Um, so, you know, we start with, with that you are, uh, you know, your profession is your journalist and uh, a travel uh, writer who, you know, who's been to, I don't know, 130 plus um, nations uh, writing about your travels and with uh, video blogging and, and such. And uh, sort of you accidentally walked into a sort of an international a crisis, if you will, that you didn't bargain for. So I'm going to let you really tell people who are listening your story and, uh, you know, describe what happened. Uh, okay, well, um, we all remember from childhood the comedy movies about those uh, strange guys who accidentally found themselves in an epicenter of spy stories. <laughs> uh, but personally, <laughs> uh, those stories seem funny but unrealistic to me. I was thinking to myself, uh, how come that intelligence services of different countries suddenly look for, let's say, a schoolboy from Oklahoma City, and why on earth uh, would this fate interest the leaders of several countries? But, you know, unfortunately, now I'm forced to admit that those children's uh, movies about spies no longer strike me as a science fiction. Right. Um, so my story... I will tell my story from the beginning. So my story could be kind of script for a Hollywood thriller, I think. Yes. <laughs> I'm far away from I'm far away from politics. I am not a human rights activist. I am just a travel journalist and blogger. I travel around the globe and tell my readers uh, stories about beautiful cities, wonderful nature, exotic beaches, and so on. So among other things, I visited Nagorno-Karabakh which called Artsakh in Armenian. So I visited Artsakh in 2011 and uh, for tourism purposes only. And I did not even immerse myself in its political status. Right. So I published a series of articles where, among other things, I emphasized a short form, in a short form that uh, Muslim Azerbaijan was ruled by the brutal dictatorship of Aliyev's family. Um, that the Armenians, Christian Armenians of Karabakh could not survive as a part of this country. And therefore, they fought for their independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this was enough for Azerbaijan. 
to put my name on the uh, blacklist of undesirable persons, uh, which means uh, enemies of the regime. Right. So I think it's important to to say here that I did not even know at the beginning that my name was on Azerbaijani blacklist. So therefore, a few years later, after visiting Karabakh, I also decided to visit Azerbaijan itself since I was interested in the, for example, Jewish history of this region. Right. For example, mountain Jews of uh, Khazar um, kingdom 2000 years ago. So I flew to Baku, passed passport, Azerbaijani passport control without any problems here at Akar. And I traveled around Azerbaijan for about 15, 20 days. And later I was arrested in Belarus Actually, six months later, after this trip to Azerbaijan, I was kept for almost two months in a Belarusian prison. And then on the personal uh, order of President Lukashenko of Belarus, I was extradited to Azerbaijan. So this caused kind of tensions in relations between Armenia and Belarus and uh, become the topic for foreign policy agenda in Israel and Russia. For example, um, Russian. Alex, uh, let me stop you for a second because <laughs> even though I know okay, your story, okay. I'm still enthralled. Um, for those who are uh, just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jarami, and I'm speaking with uh, Alex Lapshin, who is a, a journalist and a travel blogger um, whose story. Uh, has made international headlines, um, a story that deserves to be a feature film. Um, and we're listening to his uh, incredible story so far. And just to kind of, um, just to review what Alex has said is, you know, after going to over 100 nations, he visited uh, the region of Artsakh or Artsakh Republic. And uh, later, when he was in, he didn't know that he'd been put on Azerbaijan's blacklist. He was in Belarus, and uh, and he also actually visited uh, Azerbaijan as well, not knowing uh, anything about, uh, you know, the politics of it or even being concerned or interested in it. Um, Alex is Jewish from Russia originally, now uh, also an Israeli, and he was visiting uh, Azerbaijan to see some, you know, some places that are important to the Jewish heritage there. And then he goes to Belarus, where he's arrested by the Belarusian police, uh, put in jail, and later extradited to Azerbaijan. Was that accurate, Alex? As I said, uh, both Russia and Israel opposed my extradition. For example, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that Russia is categorically against the extradition to Azerbaijan, as well uh, against the criminalization of uh, any visits by journalists to certain regions of the world, including Karabakh. So Israel also protested the extradition. The European Union protested as well. Still, nevertheless, as it's known now, Belarus gave my gave me out to Azerbaijan in exchange for um, probably a loan to pay debts for Russian gas and oil. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. That's unbelievable. It's a horrible wow. story. So in Azerbaijan, I was in a, a terrible solitary confinement, solitary cell. Uh, my rights as an arrested person were constantly violated. Um, a lawyer here by my family was refused to see me. 
Um, I was not allowed to read books. Uh, Israeli and Russian diplomats were not allowed to see me for a long time, for about months and a half, even, even close to two months. Um, and that was written it that if I will not recognize Karabakh as a part of Azerbaijan in, uh, during the judgment in the court, in Azerbaijani court, I would be raped with a bottle <laughs> and then I will be killed. So they called me a dirty Armenian bastard and spy. <laughs> Actually, in spite of the fact that I'm a Jew, I have nothing to do with the Armenian nation. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Right. Um, so the behavior, in my opinion, the behavior of Azerbaijanis reminded me the horror of Nazism, German Nazism, right. concentration camps, and all these horrible movies like Schindler's List of Steven Spielberg and so on. Um, so, remember, remembering how Azerbaijani investigators and prosecutors spoke about Armenians, I saw that they did not differ in any way from the German Nazis. So, they said that Armenians are defective national freaks, um, that Armenian females are oh. prostitutes, and so um, So, basically, as a result, after spending two months in Belarus before the extradition and then seven months in Azerbaijan prison. I was assaulted by four masked men in my cell. I was beaten. And when I lost my concession, this <clears throat> a stage of uh, suicide. Uh, so while I was in an intensive care unit of Baku hospital, all the media in Azerbaijan published um, false information that the blogger Lapshin tried to commit suicide, but they saved my life. To cover up and what they did. Uh, yeah, they staged uh, or claimed falsely that you tried to commit suicide, so they can uh, clean up and they can cover up their crime, which is, you know, beating you up. Exactly, 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 exactly. So then, uh, <clears throat> President Ali of Azerbaijan suddenly decided to pardon me, and I was sent to Israel, extradited to Israel. So basically, this is my story. So after arriving in Israel, I applied to Human Rights Court. But this is a little bit different story. If, if you like, I can tell you about my uh, judgment with Azerbaijan in Strasbourg. Yes, like absolutely. So. Go ahead. Uh, so immediately after I, <laughs> I survived, I got back home to Israel. I decided to apply with a lawsuit against Azerbaijan in the human rights court in Strasbourg, France. And I won, and I won the, the judgment. The court said in a ruling published on May 20 that Baku must pay a compensation of, uh, you know, $36,000. Um, actually, basically, I am satisfied with the decision of the European courts since the decision taken uh, fully reflects all the facts of what happened to me. Azerbaijan made serious effort to prevent the adoption of such a uh, uh, decision against this country, but all efforts were useless. As for the compensation, of course, $36,000 for nine months of torture and abuse for the tears of my wife and my child and my mom is absolutely not enough. Right. Uh, this is kind of symbolic, symbolic amount. So our family actually spent more on lawyers uh, than the amount of compensation uh, decided by the court. But here the importance uh, to, important to indicate that the European court always awards symbolic amounts since the purpose is to create a 
it's more like a legal precedent and not to compensate the victim. Uh, so for this reason, my next lawsuit against Azerbaijan will be in the United States, hopefully in November or December this year, and they hope for a fair decision uh, and normal decent compensation. Something that interested me was that uh, when you were awarded the $36,000 by the European Court of Human Rights, which, by the way, uh, they contested it, and then you won again about a month ago, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Alex, um, thank you for sharing your story. You know, you, you have a, such a great attitude about it, but I know that it's not easy and it's kind of reliving, um, you know, a nightmare. Let's, let's get blunt, a nightmare that you had to go through as well as your family for such a long time. Um, I wish you um, best and safety in Armenia and, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll talk <laughs> again soon down the line to see where you're at with uh, with the upcoming ventures. Thank you. Thank you, Vic. Have a good day. Thank you. Well, that was Alex Lapshin, uh, who is uh, very gracious and uh, you know such a joy to talk to, someone who's gone through just a horrendous, horrendous experience, him and his family. You know, he still manages to have humor about it, uh, and I'm very grateful to have had this interview. As I said, uh, I interviewed Alex for my documentary feature film, uh, and so when it comes out, you will see a lot more of what we talk about in the film. And if you want to watch the five minute sizzle for it and learn more about it, uh, go to uh, motherlanddoc.com, uh, motherlanddoc.com. And I hope you enjoyed uh, the interview with Alex. Um, and Alex, thank you very much for being on the show today. Um, really, really appreciate your time. Uh, with the time difference and everything. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.